Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. I'm stoked you're here. I'm stoked you guys are here online. And uh, we're going to have a great day today. I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I'm not sure if it's going to work out. It's a bit of a last-minute idea. <clears throat> it involves an, es- an easel, an easel, easel. And, uh, and, and a felt board. So we, uh, we're going to see how we, how we go here. We are... Uh, this morning, I want to do a few things, but I want to continue something of our... Bible series on heroes coming in all shapes and sizes. And I want to look this morning at the first ever Bible hero, the first ever hero in the Bible story, the original hero. And so to find him, of course, you need to look in the book of Origins, the first book of the Bible, the book called Genesis. Is The word Genesis means origins. When something has its genesis, it's talking about its origin. Okay, So something that has its origins. And Genesis, of course, has lots of great Sunday school type stories and this first hero of all biblical history is no exception. Uh, Genesis of course contains the oldest of all the Bible stories, that sort of makes sense being at the start of the book and uh, it scholars and theologians and um, archaeologists and uh, others have spent the best part of their scholarly life trying to work out what we are supposed to make of these early primeval sagas in what many people call primeval history. Okay, the stories are there, but what exactly do they mean? How are we really supposed to understand them? And so it's interesting that both the first book in our Bible, the first stories, and the last book in our Bible, the two bookends, which are really similar in many ways, are actually the most debated and discussed uh, books of the whole Bible. How exactly are we supposed to understand these stories and as we know it all starts in uh, chapter one with a seven day creation story on this day God said and then on that second day God said and then on the third day God said and so goes the story for seven days and of course there are many arguments in both scholarly circles and among the rest of us going well what exactly does it mean when it says day you know is a day a day or is a day a thousand years or is it a billion years and what exactly does that mean and and uh, and then when it says in the beginning God created heavens and earth well what does heavens and earth actually mean does that really mean the solar system and the planet or is the whole thing a story and and heavens and earth is like an idiom that means something else after all at the end of the story it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and that word generations is only used to talk about people and their offspring is it possible that the whole story is like a picture talking about God's people being created not actually creation itself well that opens up a whole new uh, bunch of stuff doesn't and then of course you come to chapter two and uh, chapter two tells sort of another creation story. It goes sort of back and talks about the formation out of clay of Adam and joining him to Eve and the placing in the garden and Adam, Adam, whatever, whatever. Sometimes I pronounce things a little bit different to try to make you believe that that might be the Hebrew way of saying it. Uh, It's not, it's pure, you know, whatever, Uh, just to get your attention. But anyway, so he's there 
And then people wonder, well, is that like another creation story? Is it a supplementary story? Is it any coincidence that in the first chapter, it's God said, God said, God said, God said. And then in chapter 2, it says Yahweh God did this. Yahweh God did that. It actually says God's name in chapter 2. Is that two different stories? Is it a supplementary story? I don't know. That's all stuff you can talk about over lunch, Dan. So you can do that today. But then you've got the story then Adam and Eve and the garden and the whole thing. And then, of course, you have chapter 3. And in chapter 3, you've got the sons. You've got Cain and Abel and a bit of rivalry there, as, as often happens. And uh, Cain, as you know, ends up killing Abel. And, and oh, no, that's not chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the serpent, isn't it? Chapter 3 is the tree. Uh, somewhere and, and there's a serpent there and of course many of us have heard the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent and you've seen the, uh, fo- you've seen the great paintings of the Renaissance era with a snake in the tree and whatever and then of course the Hebrew scholars come along and they tell us well you know the word for serpent in the noun is uh, the word there in the Hebrew is nakash and so yes as a noun it means serpent but that word can also be a verb a doing word. And as a doing word, it means the, the diviner. The diviner. So it's like a divine being. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense. But then the word nakash can also be used as an adjective, a descriptive word. Same word. It's just a, a, as an adjective. And so not a double entendre, but a triple entendre, maybe. Because the, the adjective, that's right. Because the adjective for nakash means shiny like bronze. It's the same word when Daniel had this great vision in the book of Daniel, chapter 10 or something like that, and he sees, he sees a divine being that ends up, we think, being Jesus, and he says his legs shone like bronze. It's kind of like um, the word reading. You know, if you're an actor and you are given a reading, this is your reading for the day. Okay, that's a noun. That's the reading. Uh, as a verb, it's, look at that person, he is reading. But it can also be an adjective because you can have glasses, but then you can have reading glasses. It describes, so it's like the same word can be used as, is it possible that it wasn't actually, what Eve was looking at was not a snake, but it was actually a divine being, a shimmering light bronze diviner that, uh, and it's sort of a play on words there. Well, I don't know, the Hebrew scholars sort of debate that. And then you come to chapter four and you've got, you've got Cain and Abel, of course, the two boys there and one kills the other, I sort of mentioned that before. And then I'm sitting at the barbers the other day and the guy, because the guy knows I'm a pastor, and he said, so let me ask you a question. <laughs> Cain gets kicked out of the garden, right? Where did his wife come from? And I'm like, dude, three and a half thousand years, no one has ever asked that question. You're amazing. Uh, that's, like, that's, that's like, well done to you, sir. And, and, and of course, Cain is... is is, uh, is sent out and is given a mark. So it says, whoever sees you will want to hunt you. Well, it's obviously saying there's obviously other people around. He goes to a city and there's many cities, which of course then communicates, well, of course, then maybe Adam and Eve and his family weren't the first humans. They were just the first ones that God had a relationship with. Is that possibly what it's saying? Well, I don't know. It's another conversation to have over lunch. And then you come to chapter 5 and you've got in chapter 5, what have you got in chapter 5? Oh, Cain's kicked out, and, and so you've got his genealogy. And then you've got Seth, who's the next son, and he has his genealogy there, all in chapter 5 of Genesis. And it's really profound. You've got um, all these names taken from Seth's lineage. Chapter 5 starts by saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. So it kind of forgets Cain. The genealogy of Adam doesn't include Cain. 
Now we're looking at Seth. And so chapter 5 is all about Seth. And it lists 10 names. And they've all got these extraordinarily long ages. Hundreds of years. In fact, one guy lived for 777 years, it says. Well, that's a number that will get Chad's attention, isn't it? 777. And then another guy, it said, lived for 365 years. Well, is that a coincidence that that's a, a lunar year? I mean, another guy lived for five. 100 years or did something when he was 500 years old and another guy the oldest guy or one of the guys oh no one of the guys I should really be quicker at this one of the guys one of the guys uh lived for 930 I mean is there a coincidence that that is exactly 70 years short of a thousand are these literal lifespans or are these numbers somehow communicating something different is maybe the ancient audience supposed to pick something up with these kind of mystical numbers that you and i lose because it's three and a half thousand years old for goodness sake it's written to a people that are completely different to us but one of the things we do know that's interesting is that in this genealogy this is sunday school this is great okay this is this is this is this is all this is why I'm not invited to do super kids ever. Um, there's, now I've run out of space for the most important person in this story, you see. Um, then, then, but then what you've got is you've got these 10 names all leading up to the last one, who's Noah. Okay, so his name, uh, number 10. So this is the genealogy of, of, uh, of Adam through Seth's line. And what's really interesting is that while we don't really maybe understand if there's meant to be any significance in the numbers. What we do know in ancient history, in many cultures, is that names have significance. So names have meaning. You can go home and Google your own name and you'll find out, okay, it's got Greek origins and it means this, or it's from the Latin means this. My name's Chad, and as you know, I'm the little hole punch that comes out when you press a piece of paper. That's a Chad, apparently. So I've got very, very significant <laughs> prophetic meaning in my name. And my parents put a lot of thought into that one. So, happy Father's Day, Dad. Well done on that, on that one. It was uh, really great. Set me up for life. So then you've got that. But the names in the Bible story have, have meaning. And the first four, it's really fun. The first four names is Adam, which means man. Okay, Adam means man. You've got Adam. Seth, which means appointed. The next one is Enosh, which means mortal. And the next one's Kenan, which means sorrow. So if you look at those names, it's man appointed to mortal sorrow. It's the first four names. So it's kind of saying man is appointed to die, mortal, and that's not a good thing. That's sad. Okay, man is appointed <laughs> to mortal sorrow. Well, then you have the next few names. And the next guy is called Methuselah, and his name is his death shall bring about. The next guy is Lamech, which means the despairing. And the next one's Enoch, which means teaching. So in those three names, you've got the blessed God, his death will bring about... Oh, no, it doesn't. No, the blessed God shall come down teaching. The blessed God, those three names, Jared is shall come down, sorry. The blessed God shall come down teaching. So you've got man is appointed to mortal sorrow. The next three names, the blessed God shall come down teaching. The next three names, Methuselah, his death shall bring. I think I said that in the wrong order. Sorry, strike that from the tape. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech is the despairing. I did mess that up, really, didn't I? And then Noah means rest. His death shall bring the despairing rest. And so you've got these ten names. Man is appointed to mortal sorrow. 
the blessed God will come down teaching, his death will bring the despairing rest. In the ten names of Genesis 5. Well, is that a coincidence? Or is that somehow a pointing towards story? You see, one of the things we don't really know, all these, what, how we're supposed to understand these very ancient stories, but one thing we do know is they all serve a prophetic purpose. Genesis, the book of origins, is actually a prophetic book. It points towards the future. And Isaiah talks about this in chapter 46, verse 10, I think. And he says, listen, our God is he who makes known the end right at the beginning. Our God who is one who declares in ancient times things that are to come. So is it possible that right there in Genesis 5, we have the story of the gospel? It is appointed to man the sorrow of death. The blessed God will come down teaching. His death will bring the despairing peace and comfort. And so that's where we come to Genesis 5. That's Noah, because his name means peace. We come to our favorite Bible story of them all. We come to the first epic story of the scriptures, everyone's favorite Sunday school story. There he is, a man working with a, a sword, you see. And No, not a sword, what's it called? A saw. <laughs> and he's building a, a floating ark. Okay, fine. He's building, and then there's a... Something there. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And so we come, we come to the favourite kids' story. The favourite kids' story. Uh, after all those, you know, this divine being in, in chapter 2, and another name for divine being is sons of God. Uh, you know, you've got that at the tree, and, and then you've got the, the chapter 3, the Cain and Abel, and then you've got that, okay, then you've got this long list of names, and then you come to chapter 6, kids' Best story you can tell to kids. Let's read a Sunday school story today and see how child-appropriate this is. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Now, the word sons of God, that's used all throughout the Hebrew Bible to talk about angelic beings, okay, divine beings, supernatural beings. Anyway, these sons of God saw the daughters were attractive, and so they took as their wives any ones they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved into his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man who I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's a great Sunday school story. Story, really you've got angels interbreeding with humans you've got God sorry he made everything deciding to blot the whole thing out while I'm at it I don't like the birds the animals or the insects either so I'm going to destroy the lot of them so that's your Sunday school that's basically what we've got here really is sort of the setup for this wonderful wonderful story yet somewhere in this story and somewhere in, in all these stories there is something that has gripped the heart and the imagination of men and women, humans, for a long, 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 long time. 
In fact, the oldest story we have of a deluge, a great deluge, uh, we think it might be the oldest, anyway, was uh, there was a guy in 18-something, I've written all this down, uh, 1872, George Smith, you know him, and he's going through the library of an old Syrian king, and he finds these, he's got these clay tablets and that are dated back to about 2700 BC, so that's more than a thousand years before Moses sort of put all this stuff together, more than a thousand years. And it tells the great, it's one of the greatest, oldest stories of a hero, hero. And this hero is called Gilgamesh. And it tells a great sagas and stories. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings. It's fighting dragons and going on adventures. It's awesome. Okay. And Gilgamesh is doing this. And then one day a friend of his dies and he thinks, well, this is no good. I need to find the secret to eternal life. And so he hunts down a man and he interviews him. And this man apparently tells him the story of where he survived a great flood, a great deluge. And this man tells the story of a great deluge. The gods had sent a great deluge on the land, destroyed everything. And this man built him and his family a boat. And it rained for seven days. And the boat ended up landing on the side of a mountain. And then when he did, he sent out a raven. And then he sent out a dove. And the dove came back and he knew it was time to come out of the boat. And this is the story, part of the story, of the epic of Gilgamesh. And it turns out that many ancient cultures have a story of a great deluge and flood. Many ancient stories, uh, many ancient uh, cultures have a story. And even, you know, people debate, scholars, and this is their job, I guess, to debate this. They don't do this great work. <laughs> they concern themselves with other things like ancient cultures. But they even look at uh, Genesis and the story here and they wonder whether it's a little bit like Genesis 1 and 2, where in Genesis 1 it says, God created, God said, God said, and then Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. In this story, it's the same. You read through the Noah story in these three chapters and it's almost like it tells two stories at once. And it's Yahweh saying this, Yahweh saying this, and then God, 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 and then Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's this interesting mix between. So these are stories that have great, that, that stir the intellect of people that are far cleverer than you and I. But they're also stories that capture the heart and the imagination of many, many cultures throughout thousands, literally thousands of years. And today I want to just share some brief things about this story and hopefully capture your heart and your imagine, imagination to not see these as merely Sunday school kitty sanitised stories, but to see that somehow there is a great lesson in these epics and there is a reason that they have survived and these stories have been told in many cultures, translated, uh, you know, adjusted and told for many, many years. Today I want to look at the hero called Noah. Verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Four things of lessons in heroism that we can learn from Noah. Four simple things, hopefully they're easy for you to remember today. And hopefully what I can do is combine our hero Noah with something about Father's Day, something about baby dedications, and something about water baptism.
So here we go. One of the things that makes Noah a hero is that he was able to acknowledge what was above him. Heroes acknowledge a God that is above them. Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He had communion with God. He was able to hear God's voice and as importantly, he was able to heed God's voice and pay the price to obey what that God told him to do. And it takes a hero to acknowledge that there's something bigger than you. It takes a hero to acknowledge that there's someone smarter than you who knows something and who has wisdom that you do not have. Hebrews 11 talks about Noah and it talks about faith. It's called the great hall of faith. It's got all the heroes, quote, of faith. And it says there that faith has to first acknowledge that God is, that God exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And the very next verse says, By faith Noah, in reverent fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah was a man of faith. Noah was a man that recognized there was a voice there was a wisdom, there was a power that was higher than he. And that takes a hero to do that. Because one of the main signs of heroism, and this is where most ancient fables and stories and mythology and whatever do not communicate this like the Bible does. One of the great qualities of heroes is humility. And it takes humility to recognise there's something bigger than me. There's something greater than me. And it takes humility to recognise that when life's going well. It's one thing to cry out to God in desperation when the poo's hitting the fan and everything, you know, the rain starts coming. It's another thing when life's going okay to say, there's a God who has a higher voice than I do and I'm going to acknowledge him. I'm going to acknowledge there is something above me. It's heroic to acknowledge before the floods come that there is a God who is above us. It's heroic to acknowledge that there is an accountability time coming. The scripture talks about is appointed to man to die and then to face judgment, to face an accountability, a reckoning. And it's humbling to know that my will, I will give an account to my life to someone who is a higher authority than me. And I need to acknowledge that I'm not the Lord and I'm not the Saviour. There are things that I cannot do on my own. And this is where dads become real heroes. When dads acknowledge humbly that there is a God that I need, even when times are good, I acknowledge what is above me. Heroes also have the ability, secondly, to acknowledge what is beneath them. As a hero, I know what's above me, Noah knew what he was above him. As a hero, he also knew what was beneath him. Because the scriptures say, and we just read, not only did he walk with God, but that looked like something. He was a righteous and blameless man in his generation. He walked the path that God was walking, and sometimes that, that means acknowledging that there are things that are beneath me, there are things that I don't do, I walk a different path to others at times. This speaks to character, where we know what to say yes to, and we know 
what to say no to. And this is what Noah was known for. He was known for his character. He was known as an upright and blameless man. I'll explain in a moment. He wasn't a perfect man. But he was able to recognize there are certain things that are beneath him. This week, I spent a few days with... Uh, no, last week, I spent a few days with Ebby, Ebony, my daughter. Uh, we went uh, to a beach. We went somewhere and spent a few days on the beach, which was nice, and did a lot of walking. And one day, we're walking uh, down the beach, and... There's some surfers, which we're sort of observing them, and suddenly I, I saw a tail. And not that far out from the surfers, there was a whale, like really close. And you know when you see something you're not expecting, you're like, you look, and then you look really close, and it takes a while for your head to catch up with your eyes. That's what happened to me. It's like, whoa, there's a whale. Oh, we don't have a whale today. There's a whale! There's a whale right there. It's like maybe 50 metres away from those surfaces. That was amazing. So that was good. So that was walking on the beach. The next day, I went down to walk on the beach on my own. And same beach. I walked past where those surfaces were and turned a corner. It was a much quieter part. There was a sort of an ocean wall there. And I'm walking on the beach by my own. I'm coming up to this quiet bay. And there was only one other person there in the bay, sunbaking, whatever. I'll walk up there. And I walk and I look at this person sunbaking. And I realise, oh, that's a bit... Had a close look. I wasn't expecting that. This is a topless bather. <laughs> and it took a while for my brain to catch up with my eyes. <laughs> and then suddenly, I was very interested in whales again. <laughs> and my brain eventually did catch up. And I realised enough to know that this woman had good cause to be confident, to be bathing like that. And I was on a beach. I was on my own. I was not with Ebony. I was at a place where it'd be highly, highly unlikely anyone would know me and I had to make a decision to either go whale watching, <laughs> turn around, or be faced with the decision that, well, nobody knows, nobody sees. Maybe I can enjoy the scenery of this beach a little bit longer. <laughs> but that kind of behaviour is beneath me. It's beneath who I am. And we need a character, someone said, is what you do when no one else is watching. And these are where the real decisions come in of being a man like Noah, upright in his generation, that God sees. Because in chapter 1, chapter 7, verse 1, it starts by saying, the Lord saw that Noah was righteous. It's not actually true that no one is watching. The character is who you are when no one else is watching. And there's as an ability to recognize there are certain things that are just beneath me. Stealing is just beneath me. Lewdness is just beneath me. Name it. Deceit is just beneath me. It's not me. I am too good for that. I acknowledge who is above me, and that is a great sign of humility, of not thinking of myself too highly. But nobility is thinking of yourself pretty darn highly. And knowing who you really are. Recognising that there are certain things that are just beneath me. And of course, this is what heroes do. The opposite of this is where you've got the great villains who realise that nothing is above them. 
great dictators. Nothing is above them and everyone's beneath them. Heroes recognise what is above and what is beneath. Third thing I see in Noah is that he also was able to recognise what was behind him. Noah, of course, had a long time to build an ark and to come to terms with the fact that he was leaving something behind. There comes a moment in our life, defining moments, where a new start happens, a new beginning happens. There might be no coincidence that there were eight people on this boat. Eight is the beginning of a new thing, okay? Seven days is a full week. Day number eight is the whole new beginning, okay? But to have a new beginning, you need to have an ending. And so Moses, no, what's his name? Noah was able to recognise that there were things he was leaving behind. Today, we're going to witness people getting baptised. And somehow, Peter brings the picture of Noah and the flood into baptism when he says that somehow, it's a bit hard to understand, it's in 2 Peter 3, it talks about the waters of baptism being like Noah's water, where somehow there was something that was left behind, put to death, never to return again. And a whole new start began and we're going to be seeing people get water baptised today. He knew what was behind him. Heroes acknowledge that. Jesus used the picture of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah as well, which is a few chapters later in Genesis, to talk about an end of days, an ending coming, and to be aware, like Noah, that that was going to take place, so we're ready. Or, the, or the, who he was talking to was ready. And so we have an ending. And lastly, Noah was able to recognise what was above him, what was beneath him, what was behind him, and then what was before him. Because as the story goes, Noah's 500 years old, at least by the time this flood's about to come. And he could have thought, oh, I've had a good run. Flood comes, kills me, it's okay. 500 years, can't begrudge a man that, right? Had a good life. But Noah built an ark not for him. He built an ark for his sons. Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives and therefore obviously their children. He got animals in pairs so they could breed. He was thinking ahead. In, in part of the story, he gets clean and unclean animals because he wasn't just thinking about animals to eat. He was thinking about animals that would be used in sacrifices. This is kind of Moses' influence in that, in that story. These are there's different types of animals. He's thinking about the future. And this is what Noah's story is. He knows what he's leaving behind, but he has the ability to know what's before him and what's coming ahead. You've heard me say here before, I feel like God wants us to live from above, from heavenly wisdom, from above, in the now, but for the future. We live from above, from a heavenly perspective, understanding that there's a God above us that knows better than us. So we live from his wisdom. We live in the now, not in the past. Don't live in the past. We don't live in the future, but we live for the future. We understand there are generations and generations ahead of us and you live differently when you understand that you are living for generations that are yet to come. You have something that lies before you and that is a very important thing I see Noah doing. He thought generationally. He knew what was above him. He knew what was beneath him. He knew what was behind him and he was able to recognise what was before him. And one of the ways you can read this story is by looking at Noah as the hero and putting yourself in his sandals. And saying, I want to be like Noah. And that's a good thing to do with your sword or your thing, whatever it's called in your hand, right? He just used a chainsaw. It must have been way quicker. No wonder it took him 100 years. <laughs> but there's another way to view this story. You see, there's three people. There's three groups of people in this story. And I'll finish with this. There's three groups of people in this story. We can identify with Noah. So if I was Noah, I'm going to take that lesson. 
But I think who we should first and foremost identify with is not Noah, but are his kids. We should identify with the three boys and their wives. You see, Noah, like many Old Testament heroes, is a shadow that points to the real hero of the Bible story, who is Jesus. This shadow here behind me, that's not Chad. That points to the substance, which is me. Noah is a shadow, a picture pointing to Jesus. You see, who ultimately was righteous and blameless in his generation? Jesus, perfectly righteous. Noah was not perfectly righteous. After the flood, he ends up getting drunk, totally stark naked in his tent, causes a bit of hassle amongst his boys, a great challenge that we all face in life when we realise our fathers aren't perfect. When we realise that hero figures that in one, one part of the story are saving the world. Oh, this preacher is awesome. This father is awesome. That politician's awesome. Yeah, no one says that. This, this, this person's amazing. And yet the next thing you know, they're stark naked, drunk, lying out in their tent, exposed to the world. And you think, oh, not perfect. Well, Jesus comes as the perfect hero righteous in his generation. Jesus knew what was above him, obeying the voice of his father. Jesus was sinless and spotless. He knew what was beneath him more than Noah could ever do. Jesus was the one who knew what was behind, left heaven to come to us, knew what was before him, the joy that set before him, and he endured the cross. He is the one that built the ark for us to be on. He is the one that built an ark and said, now come aboard, family. Come aboard, get on board the salvation I have provided for you. Maybe we're to see Jesus, Noah, as Jesus in the story, not us. Maybe we're to see Noah as Jesus and ourselves as the sons and daughters saying, Dad, I thank you that you've made a way. Because the story does not say that his kids were righteous in their generation. It's got nothing to say about their character. They could have been wicked. They could have been the most corrupt people like everybody else. But they were invited on board. And they received the gift of salvation from that flood thanks to their dad. I wonder if we should see Noah as Jesus in that picture. And then, of course, there's a third group of people, the people that didn't get on the boat. And, of course, that's a group that we don't want. I want to encourage you, please, do not end up identifying with them. Don't end up as the group of people that refuse the invitation to come and acknowledge a God who rescues and saves and redeems. You don't want to miss the boat. Had to get a dad joke in there somewhere. You don't want to miss the boat. Take Jesus up on his offer. Trust him when he says there is a day of reckoning coming and there is a God above you that you can trust in his way to enter eternal life, to enter the new beginning, the new life that he's come to offer. And that's one of the stories of Jesus. He took a wooden cross to pay a price, to take the beating of God's judgment so that those who are found safe in him will find rescue and be given the gift of eternal life. If you don't know Jesus here today, I want to encourage you, no matter who you are, all of us to some degree have a relationship with God. You just might not know what that's like. But I want to encourage you to take another step and consider getting in the boat Consider saying, Jesus, I trust you and the provision that you have made to make eternal life possible for me because we cannot do that on our own. I encourage you to take Noah up on his offer today.
Because ultimately, the hero of all heroes is Jesus. And Noah is just a picture of that. Let me pray for you. And I'll pray for those of you watching at home as well. Father, we thank you so much for the great stories that you have left us with in your scripture. We thank you for the way they capture the heart and the imagination and that they serve as powerful pictures of who you are and how you choose to relate to us. Father, for all of us here today, I pray that we would come closer to you. I pray that those who do not yet know you, who have not acknowledged the God above them, would today feel the stirring of their heart to acknowledge you, to believe your words, to come to you and receive eternal life and to follow you in a whole new life and a new start as we're going to be celebrating others today. I pray that the ministry of your invisible spirit would do its work here this morning and those viewing at home in Jesus' incredible name. And everybody said... I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.